Man, if I get a little emotional this morning, you'll know why. I mean, just as you were, y'all were speaking, Raymond, I was thinking back to 40 years ago. Uh, the vast majority of you know that I came from a just a really, really sad and sick home to East Carolina University. And, uh, and Raymond uh, had arrived in his soon after arrival. His mother died, which left him an orphan. And there we both were at East Carolina, lost and looking. And Joe Schrader <laughs> shares the gospel with us and disciples us. And, uh, man, what's beautiful is God has been kind to you and I over 40 years. But Joe Schrader is, uh, <laughs> man, we're not the only ones. Literally, his fingerprints, humanly speaking, are all over the world. And so that in itself should give us great encouragement and a vision for how God might use our own lives. Uh, because uh, there, would be, there was no one that would have looked at Raymond and I and said uh, that you would become a Christian. Probably they would have said Raymond would become a Christian before me, but uh, <laughs> you know what I'm trying to say. So, man, thank you all so much for coming and delightful to hear from you and be with you and see you. Um, okay, let's turn the page here this morning. Let me you know, in this new season, as Kevin said, is we're really going to focus on this next year connecting upward with God. Uh, we're going to continue to suggest, strongly suggest resources for you to use. One is our own teaching pastor, Monty Waldron, a few years ago, wrote a devotional book from the book of Psalms. And so you can get a copy for $10 out on the table. And uh, again, we're trying to create devotional, robust devotional habits where you're meeting and connecting upward with God. This is a great resource. I want to encourage you to, uh, it's called Say So. And uh, secondly is a book that I was exposed to in seminary that I'm actually doing with my community group called Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life by Don Whitney. Powerful but yet simple uh, to help you with Bible intake, prayer, journaling, Etc. So I want to encourage you uh, to get that book as well. Those books are on the bottom of your notes. Uh, let me just start here. As Christ followers, there's a very relevant question that we must ask and answer, and it is, what do we do when life is hard? And that question we will ask and answer this morning as we look at a song of David, Psalm chapter 4. Now, some of you are thinking, Jeff, what are you talking about? We just started teaching through the whole book of Hebrews two weeks ago, and now we're jumping in Psalm chapter 4. You and Monty lied to us. You're tricking us. We are teaching through the book of Hebrews, but we're going to, throughout teaching through the book of Hebrews, we are going to take a look and pause at some Psalms, and here's why. When it talks about connecting upward with God, there's no better place to go than the Psalms. The New Testament has over 100 quotations from the book of Psalms in it by its writers. In the opening line of the New Testament, Matthew declares that Jesus is the son of David and then uses 15 quotations from Psalms to prove his messiahship. 
Jesus all throughout the book of Luke that we just talked through. We saw that he quoted the Psalms. And even Satan gets on the act by misquoting Psalm 91, 11, and 12 when tempting Jesus. And in the book of Hebrews, the writer quotes Psalms 19 times and uses 15 allusions from the Psalms. I think, don't quote me on this, it's the most of any book in the New Testament. And he does so to show, the writer of Hebrews does so to show that Jesus is supreme over all, that he is better even when life is hard. So if there's ever was a time where you and I need with 100% certainty to know that Jesus is better, it is for sure when life is hard. Now, you may ask the question, well, when is life hard? I would suggest all the time. Say all the time. If we're being honest, from the time we awake, if it feels like this to you, it, it feels like this to me, to the time we go to bed, every minute of every day, and here's why, if we're spiritually attuned and awake, we know the scripture says that there is an enemy that is seeking, seeking to devour and destroy you. 1 Peter 5, 8 says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone, you and I, to devour. There's a spiritual warfare where Satan is shouting lies and accusations at your soul. John 8, Jesus says, he's Satan. There's no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. And if you and I are not connecting deeply with God, we do and will believe those lies. Then there's a daily struggle with our own flesh in the world. We have loved ones and friends that disappoint and hurt us. We disappoint and hurt those that we love. We have family and friends die. We had financial strain, marriage strain, teenager strain. Say teenager strain, right? Wayward adult children that, breaks, that break our hearts. Abuse of all kinds. And then we have our own past painful stories that we're still battling and living out in the present. And now, in 2020 and 21, we throw a pandemic on top of all that. I would suggest, and I think the scriptures do, that life is always hard. I love the prayer we read this morning. So in line with that, life is hard. So what do we do when life is hard? Psalm chapter 4 helps us to navigate life, honoring God in Psalm 4. Let me read it together. Turn your Bibles if you have them. Answer me, <clears throat> David writes. When I call, O God of my righteousness, you have given me relief when I was in distress. Put it plainly, when life is hard. Be gracious to me and hear my prayer. O men, how long shall my honor be turned into shame? How long will you love vain words and seek after lies? But know that the Lord has set apart the godly for himself. The Lord hears when I call to him. Be angry and do not sin. <clears throat> Ponder in your own hearts. 
on your beds and be silent. Offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. There are many who say, who will show us some good? Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace, I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. So this morning, we're going to see where David cries out to God while he's in need. Then David preaches, it says in your notes, to men who are in need. And then David receives from God all that he needs. The context here is uh, David wrote this while on the run from his third son, Absalom. 2 Samuel 14.25 gives us a description of Absalom. said he was the most handsome man in all of Israel. That can be a blessing and a curse. And here it's a curse because he was the favorite son of David. And he was the favorite of the people of Israel. He was charming. You'll find out if you read 2 Samuel, he drove a magnificent chariot. Check this out. That had 50 men running in front of it just to honor him. Absalom worked with his followers to stage a coup against who? His own father. David was the God's appointed king of Israel, and Absalom, in his charming, manipulative way, gathered a group to say, I want to be king. After four years of working with this group, he declared himself kings, and now Israel has Two kings, one legitimate and one illegitimate. Folks, just free here. If you have two kings, that's not a good thing. David had to flee, and now he is on the run. You're talking about life being hard. It's a life and death situation. David is stressed out of his mind. But I want to tell us this, whatever, what's beautiful about Psalms 4 you may not be on the run, but whatever your heart is, Psalms 4 speaks to it clearly. Speaking of life being hard, here's how John Piper summarizes it. So quote in your notes. When someone drops, when something drops into your life that seems to threaten your future, remember this, the first shock waves of the bomb are not sin. The real danger is yielding to them, giving in, this is key, putting up no spiritual fight. And the root of that surrender is unbelief, a failure to look back to God's past faithfulness so that you can believe and cling to God's future grace or faithfulness, a failure to cherish all that God promises to be for us in Jesus. And so this morning, we're going to look at when the bomb drops, but we're also going to be equipped to spiritually fight back so that we will believe. So first, it says, David cries out to God in need, verse 1. I want you to notice there the boldness in which David prays to God. He says, it's a statement, answer me, it's a command, answer me when I call to you. How does he do that? 
How does he pray with such boldness? I want to suggest to you that he does that because he knows who God is. He knows he has access to him. He has a lifetime of walking intimately with him. A little bit about David. Do you, do you remember David had been walking with God and then Goliath comes on the scene and he's the little brother and he says to the giant, when everyone else was afraid, you come against me with sword and spear, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel. This day the Lord will hand you over to me. Does that sound like a guy? And that's 1 Samuel 17. Does that sound like a guy who is just barely acquainted with the living God? No. You remember how David began initially as an aide to Israel's first king. After he killed Goliath, Saul, the first king of Israel, said, man, I, I want that guy on my team. And Saul became jealous over David. He tried to kill David because people were naturally drawn to him. And so there were several times when, again, David was on the run. King Saul was trying to kill him. And David had opportunities while Saul slept to take him out. And David said, no, I will become king when God appoints it on God's timeline. That's a heart to obey a God that you know what's right and what's wrong. Now, there's proof here that David knows who God is because of this statement, O God of my righteousness. David says that whatever I have that is good is received from you. You chose me. You made me your servant. You gave me a new mission. It is that God that David appeals to. He goes to the king's bench of heaven, and he says, you, God, are the God that has made me righteous, not because of me. David again shows us he has a long history of walking with God when he says, you have given me relief when I was in distress. <clears throat> Do you notice that that's past tense? <laughs> David says, God, we have a past together that is so relevant for this present situation. There's been history here between David and God. David is remembering God's past mercies to him as a foundation, you've heard me say this before, or a springboard for his present and future favor. He is saying, oh God, I've been here before in this kind of hard place, and you came to my aid. You helped me, and I need you to do it again. While I need you to do something let me first, David, is saying, talk to you about something that you already did. Look, you have a history with God. It could be short, it could be long, but the scriptures also give us a history with God and his faithfulness. So we look to the scriptures, we look in our own life, and dependent upon how intimate and long and con con continual that intimate connection with God is, will be dependent upon how you can pray like David pray. Lastly, David asked God to be gracious to him as he hears David's prayer. I flee to you in need of grace and mercy because I am stressed out of my mind. Th this isn't a kind of I lost my keys kind of stress. 
right? This isn't a kind of my car broke down kind of stress. This is literally life and death. David is saying, God, if you don't do something, I'm going to do something that's going to completely dishonor you and destroy my own life. I love that phrase, I need grace. David is asking God to give him something he does not deserve. I don't know about you, but if you're not familiar with the scriptures or you forget the scriptures, our tendency is to say, God, you're not fair. I need fair. And I'm going to tell you what, you don't want to pray God be fair. Because fair, <laughs> fair is not grace. Fair would be destructive to you and I. So he says, I want grace and we want grace is what we would say. Now, I just want to make some personal application. I'm, I'm, I'm on purpose this morning. I, I want to dig into the text enough for us to know, but be untechnical enough for us to apply well. There is absolutely no way that David cries out to God in his first response in light of this situation that he's in unless he is a fully aware of who God is. It just doesn't happen. He has met with God over and over and over throughout his life. And now he's at a place month after month, year after year, of calling out to God first and foremost. He has this deep intimacy with the living God. And I want to remind us, you and I can't get here. We can't get where David is in the midst of being stressed out of our minds to call out to him first and ask, oh God, answer me when I call. I need your grace and mercy. That's not our natural bent. And you can't get there being a wordless Christian. There's no way, no how. I know you want to lay at night. I know you're tired. I know life is stressful. Lay your head on your Bible. But it will not do osmosis. Some of you tried that. One writer said, complaining about God being silent when your Bible is closed is like complaining about not getting texts when your phone is turned off. Oh, the writer of Hebrews tells us, Hebrews 4.16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need. And that confidence only comes as you open this scripture and connect upward with God in a very consistent, robust devotional life. In our verses, the next verses 2 through 6b, David goes from pleading to God. I love this. It's a little hard to, to figure out what's happening here, but we're going to unpack it from pleading to God to preaching to men. Now, I just want to pause there. Think about how much better our lives would be before we ever spoke to men about conflict that we first talked to God. <laughs> We've all failed in doing that. But notice he does not complain about his circumstances, but instead is telling his enemies in verses 2 through 6b the same thing he has already told himself. He's telling them what they need to do to connect upward with God, to get in line with the very will of God. 
You got to remember, these are fellow Jews that had access to God, just as David had, but they are in full rebellion. Hebrews 5.11 describes these folks. It tells us it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. These men, Absalom and his mighty men, are dull of hearing the words of God. And David begins to preach to them. Preach to men who are in need, verses 2 through 6b. In verse 2, David has gone from the closet, I would say, of connecting upward with God to the field of conflict. Because he knows the truth of God and the God of truth, he is able to quickly diagnose the problem here. And he lays that out for us. He says, they, Absalom and his men, they love vain or empty words. They chase after lies. These men have told the people of Israel, look, David doesn't care for you like we'll care for you. Look, if you'll follow us, We'll, we'll do better for you and our countrymen than David will. Look, politics has been alive a long time, folks. There's the political commercial right there. What they fail to tell the people, because they're liars, is that God has appointed David. David is God's appointed king of Israel. And until God changes that, they need to back off. They, they know this, though. They know God has chosen David, but they don't care. They are, have this crazy lust for power. And sin against others is ultimately a sin against God himself. And so they're not only sinning against David, but ultimately against God. Then verse 3, David continues to preach to them what he has been taught by God. Verse 3 says, the Lord has set apart the godly for themselves. The Lord hears when I call to him. Now I want you to notice here. If this whole group, your own son is against you, and this whole group of Israelite men is against you, and they're gathering numbers by the days and weeks to come against David, I want you to notice, though, that David did not believe the lies. He, he didn't go into shame mode and go, Oh, man, I, I must be doing a bad job. I'm terrible. Nobody likes me. Everybody hates me going out door to eat worms. You notice he didn't go there. Secondly, he didn't go into revenge mode. How dare you speak against God's anointed, God's anointed and just begin to rip them to shreds. Here's what he said. <laughs> he just said what the scripture is true. He basically preaches to them what he has learned to preach to himself from knowing God intimately, which for us would be our identity in Christ. That is, he is set apart. He is chosen. He is graced by God himself. Romans 8, 31 would say, if God is for us, who can be what? Against us. <laughs> David took truth because he knew the God of truth. David, like us, has been set apart by grace. He not only knows it and believes it, but he lives like it. Man, I, I don't know how, how many of us, including myself, could have done that. Verse 3b says, since God has set me apart, 
He cannot but choose to hear me when I cry to him. Hebrews 4.16 So let us come boldly to the throne of our gracious God. There we will receive mercy and we will find grace to help us in this time of need. David knows who God is, which gives him biblical confidence in who he is and spiritual insight to who those men are. Verse 4. I love this. David now tries to shepherd them towards truth with pastoral gentleness. Who does that? To your enemies. Only a man who is fully acquainted with God. He says to them, be angry and do not sin. He says, I know you're angry. And you're not the only one that's angry. I'm angry too. He tells them, be aware of the anger you are feeling. And in doing so, it should make you take a deep breath. He's coaching them. He's shepherding them. He's leading them spiritually. It should make you pause to slow down before you do something so stupid. Before you act in such a way that's going to get you killed and you, or you destroy your own life. Now, I want to take a personal moment here because I, I just thought as a recovering rageaholic, I can tell you that I have lived in reverse of David's counsel, where I sinned in my anger. Matter of fact, I mentioned in my sabbatical sermon that I was haunted uh, with my sin as I met with God this summer. Visions and, and pictures of me raging that felt so right at the time. And yet now it's clear as a bell that it was sinful and hurtful. I am astonished after 40 years of knowing Christ, grinding in his word, crying out to him. <laughs> I'm astonished how long it's taking for God to changed me, but feeling like I'm in a stupor after a rage episode. And yet, hopeful, God, I need you to change me. I need to learn to be angry and do not sin. That does not happen without the grace of God and the word of God and the spirit of God and the people of God. It does not happen if I'm not meeting with God. When I failed and raged, I felt also to ask myself, why are you so spitting mad in light of God's great mercy to you in Christ? That's the question I failed to answer. Spurgeon put it this way. He said, go to thy bed and think upon thy ways. Ask God's counsel on thy pillow and let him instruct you in the quiet of the night. Hebrews 3.15 says, Today, when you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. That's how we move forward. Absalom and his men 
they failed to do this. They failed. When they heard the voice of God, they hardened their hearts, and it cost them their lives. Go read 2 Samuel 14, chapters 14 through 18. You'll find that Absalom was riding along on a horse and got his hair caught on a limb of an oak tree, I believe, snatched him off the horse and injured him, and one of David's mighty men came along and took him out. Verse 5, David continues trying to help these rebellious men turn to God. Offer right sacrifices and trust the Lord. If they had obeyed verse 4, then they could have obeyed verse 5. And here for the Jew, it meant offer sacrifices for their sins, repent, and do what the Lord says. For us, it means confess our sins and flee to the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Verse 6, David then asked these men a rhetorical question. Who will show us any good? Or put another way, where can we find good when life is hard? He then graciously answers those questions or that question in verses 7 and 8. And I'm going to unpack that as we end up. But before we go there, I want to remind you, again, there is no way. There's absolutely no way you and I will be able to live in this world where life is hard and to respond to that hardness in the way David has done, that we may flourish and honor God, let alone shepherd and teach your friends, let alone shepherd and teach your own enemies, those who are trying to take you down without a robust and consistent time meeting with God via his word and prayer. Where you and I develop, let me put it this way, some spiritual guts, right? Some substance in our souls that's internal and deep and real. It is a lifetime process, but folks, you got to start somewhere. David here is just giving away what he's been given. And where he's been giving his source is his connecting upward with God. God's word will do its job first on you and then through you. And let me show you from 2 Timothy 3 why that is so. Here's what it says. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching. David was doing that. For reproof, David was doing that. For correction, David was doing that. And for training in righteousness, David was modeling that. That the man of God, whether it be David or me or you, may be complete and equipped for every good work. When you and I open this scripture and meet with God in a sense of, Lord Jesus, I need you to do these things in my life. Teach me, reprove me, correct me, and train me in righteousness. God will mature you in Christ. Lastly, David receives from God all that he needs. Verses 6b through 8. So because David cried out to God in need and because David drew upon his long history of being trained in the very words of God, of cultivating this deep relationship with God, he obeyed God, we saw, where life was hard. And here, David receives his reward. 
He receives something that money and power can't buy. It cannot be produced. It cannot be self-willed to come in fruition. Look at verse 7 and 8. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. In verse 6b, he answers their question of who will show us some good. And look what he says. Lift up the light of your face upon us, O Lord. Let me see you more clearly. And if I do, I will see good, no matter the circumstance. But you can't see it more clearly if this Bible is closed. And then verse 7 Spurgeon sums up verse 7 like this. Jesus alive in the heart is better than corn in the barn or wine in the vat. Jesus is better, the writer of Hebrews has been telling us. Spurgeon says here, Jesus is alive in the heart is better than corn in the barn or wine in the vat. Absalom and his men were pictures of the world, his power system, which is ultimately antithetical to God and his ways, and their barns are full, and their vats of wine are full, but they are miserable and on a road to destruction. The joy of Jesus in the middle of my heart circumstances are better and possible, and possible, if you are in this scripture and you know him like David knows him. And then in verse 8, the conclusion, <laughs> this is beautiful. The very thing that every person in this church and in the world is looking for. He says, in peace I will both lie down and sleep for you alone, O God. O Lord, make me dwell in safety. David concludes with this truth. If the world cannot give me joy, then the world cannot take it away. My circumstances cannot take it away. Notice here, David uses the word both. He said, both lies down and sleeps. Now, you and I know from practical experience that it is possible, nod your head if you're with me here, to lie down and not sleep. Anybody ever been there? Yeah, I can go lay down, but I can count sheep. I can have panic attacks. I can fret and rage and think of all that's going to happen. I might have had a good day here, but think about what will tomorrow be like? Because at some point, I'm going to blow up. I mean, you can lose your mind while laying in your bed. Anybody been there? But David says, I'm going to do both. I'm going to lay down and I'm going to sleep. And the reason is of the God that he knows deeply has given him peace. Kevin Perry, a great theologian, once said that peace is in a person. And it's in the person of Jesus Christ because he's better. David says, you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. C.S. Lewis put it this way. There's no pillow so soft as a promise from the living God. I hope you understand there's no lasting joy, no lasting peace, unless you are deeply connected 
to the author who is everlasting joy and everlasting peace. You want joy? You want peace? Those are questions. You want to lie down and sleep at night and just not lie down and stare at the ceiling? Then with confidence draw near to him who sits on his throne of grace so that you may receive the mercy and grace and joy and peace you need because, folks, life is always hard. Always. Let me end with this. Ironically, this week, I got a call from a long-term friend. And I was actually studying Psalms chapter 4. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm studying my Bible. Boy, that felt good, didn't it? He's a believer. And he said, you got a few minutes to talk? I said, yeah. What's going on? Put my stuff down. Leaned back in my chair in the office. And all I could hear was crying on the other end. He, he didn't know what we're doing at this church. He confessed to me that he had not read his Bible for eight years. Not opened it. He was angry. Life wasn't going as he thought it should. He had no joy, no peace. He cannot sleep at night. He said that specifically. He has been in a great church for all these eight years. He knows how to do church things, but he does not know the chief shepherd of the church well. <laughs> he knows about him. He knows him through other people. He knows him through sermons. He doesn't know the king of kings who leads his church. He doesn't know the great, know the great bridegroom of the church. And I listened to him, and I thought, if Jesus is not better to him personally or to me or to you, joy and peace will evade you always. The exciting part was at the end where he said, I need you to hold me accountable. I don't want to waste the next eight years of my life spiritually. I said, man, now we're talking. Now we're talking. The Lord Jesus sits on the throne of grace. He has not gone anywhere. And that chair is always empty. And I told him that. And I told him I'm going to send him some resources. I'm going to send him a little devotional book. And I'm going to send him a little sticker to draw near. Because the next eight years can be completely different than the last eight. I want that for you. I want that for me. I want us to connect upward with God so as to actually live out how I think John Stott, the author of many books, but the one I read this summer, The Cross of Christ, the classic, how he describes a mature Christian. Folks, this is what we're shooting for, okay? And only meeting with God in a robust devotional life not in a robot, mechanical way. Okay, God, I'll meet with you. No, Lord Jesus, this is Jeff. <laughs> Good morning. I'm hurting this morning. I'm excited this morning. I'm, I'm, I'm frustrated this morning. Jenna's driving me crazy this morning. 
I got all kind of stuff going on, but I need to know you in such a way that you would produce this. And here it is. The Lord Jesus makes no mistakes in managing his friends' affairs. He orders all their concerns with perfect wisdom. All things happen to them at the right time and in the right way. He gives them as much of sickness and as much of health and as much of poverty and as much of riches, as much of sorrow and as much of joy as he sees their souls require. Oh, isn't he better? He leads them by the right way to bring them to the city of habitation, to heaven. He mixes their bitterest cups like a wise physician and takes care that they have not a drop too little or too much. His people often misunderstand his dealings, don't we? Come on, when life is hard, don't we under misunderstand? But they, they, he's talking about his people, are silly enough to fancy their course of life might have been better ordered. But in the resurrection day, they will thank God that not their will, but Christ's will was done. There is no way, no how, that you can get that and walk well in the midst of life being hard for a lifetime unless you meet with him. This is not an intellectual exercise. Although your intellect is needed and good, this is a meeting with God with a heart of humility and a posture of submission. Oh, Lord, conform me into the image of your beloved son so that I may see and love like you see and love. So I want to ask yourself this morning a question just for a couple minutes. We're running over. Raymond and Justine, we're so long this morning. So I want you to take two minutes, and I want you to say, Lord, give me the next right step for me to make room for you in my life to meet with you. Go ahead and ask that question. This morning, Lord Jesus, we come to you. I pray you would draw us to yourself, that you would work circumstances in such a way, whatever it takes, that we have to meet with you, make us dependent upon you, submit to you, hunger and thirst for you in such a way that we make room for you. And Lord, as we open your scriptures, we come to your throne of grace that you would meet us we would experience you in real and new and profound ways that you would transform us as Justine said from the inside out 
we would not play church, we would not perform, but you, we would meet with the living God in such a way that would literally be life, life-changing. We love you. We're grateful for your word to us that you are a God who speaks. And we ask that in Christ's name.